0: I'm Esther Armar. Welcome. You're listening to The Spin. It is that time for an hour where smart is sexy. The Spin, our weekly all-women-of-colour media panel. I'm live in 3FM studios in Accra, Ghana. Our contributors are on the line via NPR in Washington, D.C. We are on air nationally across the United States and internationally in Ghana and Nigeria. This program is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. Today, our main event conversation, Black Lives Don't Matter, Blue Lives Do, Freddie Gray Dead, Killer Cop Cleared as New Bill Makes Targeting Police Officers a Hate Crime. And our second discussion, Africa Liberation Day, the death of charity porn. All of that coming up. Our contributors this week are Shani Jamila, Sofia Kindero, and Malence Bart Williams. Shani Jamila is an artist and managing director of the New York Urban Justice Center. Malence Bart Williams is an activist and founder and creative director of the Sierra Leone based creative collective Fulleron Show. Malence's TED Talk has gone global and viral with its shifting narrative on Sierra Leone and Africa, plus a critique of what Malence calls, quote, charity porn, unquote. Sofia Quintero is a writer, producer, and author of young adult novels. Her latest book is Show and Prove. Welcome, welcome, ladies. Hello, everybody. Great to be here. Our main event conversation, Freddie Gray dead, police officer cleared of killing him. The news reports told the story.
1: The verdict is in and it is not guilty for Baltimore police officer Edward Nero.
2: We turn to Baltimore next this evening, a city on edge after a police officer was found not guilty in the arrest of Freddie Gray. Officer Edward Nero was on bicycle patrol last April when he was called to assist in Gray's arrest, helping to put him in the van where Gray suffered a fatal spinal cord injury. Officer Nero leaving
0: court cleared of the charges today. The verdict prompted this reaction on the streets outside the courtroom.
3: Like, so obviously we're outraged,
4: angered, you know, this is a miscarriage of
3: justice. Freddie Gray did not kill himself. He did not kill himself, yet no know he's dead. Uh, somebody needs to be held accountable.
0: Freddie Gray was a 25-year-old young black man. On April 12th last year, police chased him after he made eye contact with officers. He ended up face down on the sidewalk. Six officers piled on top of him, handcuffed, and was then hauled to his feet, He couldn't walk. His leg seemed broken. He was put in the back of a police van. Shackles were put on his feet, his hands still cuffed. The ride in the police van ended up with Freddie Gray's spine being severed. One week later, he was dead. Killed by Baltimore police officers. His arrest was ruled illegal. It was the illegal arrest for which Officer Nero was being prosecuted. Now, according to news reports, had Officer Nero been convicted, the result would mean a precedent had been set. Here's Sunny Hostin, ABC News senior legal correspondent, explaining the implications had there been a conviction. Had he been found guilty of these crimes, officers across the country would have felt uh, that they could not arrest people, that they could not do their jobs. Hmm, imagine that, cops thinking twice before arresting young black and brown men and women due to the justice system sanctioning them for illegal arrests. Freddie Gray's death was ruled a homicide. Baltimore City State Attorney Marilyn Mosby charged the six officers as follows. Homicide, second-degree depraved heart murder. Manslaughter, involuntary manslaughter. Second-degree negligent assault. Misconduct, manslaughter by means of vehicle. Manslaughter by means of criminal negligence. Misconduct in Office for Failure to Secure a Prisoner, Failure to Render Aid, Assault in the Second Degree, False Imprisonment, Intentional Assault in the Second Degree. Officer Nero is the first to walk free from court. This is the second trial in Freddie Gray's killing. The first officer's trial ended with a hung jury. A police officer killing a black man walks free, as a bill in Louisiana is set to make targeting a police officer an actual hate crime. HB 953, also called the Blue Lives Matter Bill, has already passed both chambers of the Louisiana legislature and will be signed into law by Louisiana Governor John Bell Edwards. Blue lives, black lives, bills, 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 and notions of justice. Let's talk whose lives matter. Sophia Quintero, let me start with your thoughts.
4: The Blue Lives Matter Bill is very disturbing, but it's not unsurprising. Um, as uh, uh, civil rights attorneys are saying, this is a bastardization of what hate crime bills are intended to do, which are to protect people of particular identities. Police are armed, and many localities already carry higher penalties for violence against police officers and even other government workers who are not armed. And blue is not a skin color. But I expect things like this in this political climate, unfortunately. There a resurgence of the visibility of resistance against police violence, and I emphasize visibility because these movements have always been there, um, but now they're more visible uh, because of the Black Lives Matter movement, and it is an election year, and politicians are going to exploit that visibility, and gestures like this bill do win elections. Uh, People say they want better schools, but investments in public education don't yield Results in an election cycle, but if you put an extra B cup on your block, you see that cop, and you think your government is working better for you. And the irony that I'm really struggling with here is the fact that police do have a subculture. It's a very insular subculture. They live in an isolated communities. They tend to associate with only each other, and they are predominantly white. And there are these cop families where generations upon generations enter the police force. And an undeniable part of this subculture that we have to grapple with is that is a negative view of humankind. The nature of their work puts them into constant contact with people who are at the bottom of the social order or who are not at their best or at low points in their lives. And they're walking into these situations anticipating hostility, even when they're being called to help. And those Hostility is shaped by race, class, and the real social constructs. constructs. So people want to say, oh, people hate cops, but when are we really going to grapple with the fact that there's a legacy of cops having a hate problem of their own?
0: And that's what makes this book really disturbing. Shawnee Jamila? Freddie
5: Gray suffered a cool and unusual death. And the TV coverage of the trial keeps replaying this image of him being led to the van that would take him on the ride that would eventually kill him. And I found myself unable to watch it because the pain on his face, his inability to walk on his own, all of it was just too difficult to bear witness to. And I think especially in retrospect, because we all know the fate that awaits him. so as I've been watching pundits analyze this case, I think the application of the charges that Neuroface have been called into question. Um, people have been saying characterizing the assault charge as radical. Um, but I think that the charges were atypical because the circumstances of his death were so egregious and multilayered. So I agree that it's disappointing, um, although sadly it's surprising that neither of the two officers who've been tried thus far have been convicted. The first one, of course, resulted in a mistrial, and the second in an exoneration. Um, and it's because of the reputation of scenarios like this that many believe the society is already constructed to offer special protection to officers. Um, and in contrast, people who extend the protection under hate crime legislation are typically those um, for whom it's difficult to find justice. Uh, so as... I think about this case, it's just—it's my sincere hope that the parties that are responsible for Mr. Gray's death are going to be held responsible for their crimes. Um, and the society at large is going to be willing to unravel the systemic, institutionalized discrimination that gives rise to our need to collectively reinforce the fact that Black Lives Matter.
0: Melence, mm. Williams?
1: I always like to look at and analyze the underlying reasons for such behavior, and we see this type of behavior not just since yesterday. Today it's a police force as another... Um, time and point with a slave master and so on. There's this really stark hate from white males towards black males, predominantly as males. And um, what is hate really? It's, It's just another expression of fear. And where does that come from? It really has a lot to do with masculinity, white men feeling threatened by the black masculinity because it's a dominant gene, just how nature designed it. And when you look at the course of its it's really like almost when you corner a dog, you know, it's frightened, but it will, will fledge its teeth and attack you out of fear. And that is really what is happening because ultimately black people are all over the world. And um, just by procreating, the black gene is wiping out the white race and underlying fear in men make them react that way it's just a matter of fear so ultimately of course it's very tragic what's happening but it's almost a sense of pity that i feel to towards them you know it's almost like they sense that their last days are counted because in a matter of seconds the the global population will be colored you know that is not even it will happen in a matter of seconds faster than we can actually watch and think just think of um India, Asia, these countries alone, just a few of them they make up thirty percent of the world's population you know that that doesn't even include Africa and um so the majority of the world's population is colored it's a threat you know, and why do they exude it or 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 portrayed so much towards black males because it's, it's 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 really a battle that they cannot win it's a battle they cannot win they're cornered, you know, and it's almost like yeah, I'm taking your oxygen away and your panic, you know, and that's the expression of your fear because somebody that is not scared would never behave like that with so much hatred, you know. And somebody that's in a weaker position, you you, you abuse the, the situation. You wouldn't, I mean, a samurai wouldn't fight like that. Let's put it that way. It's a dog that's cornered, a small, tiny dog that's cornered, fletching its teeth and attacking you and biting you in the leg, you know. It comes from that from, from, from that angle and I believe we have to go through this cycle but ultimately it will resolve itself, you know, because you can't combat nature no matter which which tactics or 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 things you epidemics or whatever you want to call it to implement, you know, to suppress the black DNA it's not going to happen. It is dominant. I'm a product of both, you know, black and white. And my colour is my skin is colored, you know, and um, nature takes its course, whether that's climate change and so on, so on. There's so many factors that will ultimately not allow that race to survive in the long term.
0: I think what's interesting um, for me is two things. One is that um, the nature of the way the judge broke down the ruling and the, the kind of technical Passing of the the notion of responsibility, there were six officers involved um, in the killing of Freddie Gray, and what the judge was doing in this long twenty minute ruling that he read out was to try and break down exactly what Officer Nero um, did, like what role did he play in this young man ending up dead, and I think. I think part of this is a shortcoming of the justice system because the police is an institutional force and the way they dealt with him was via an institutional um, a, 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 an institutional um, weapon. It was beyond an individual act because for, it's two things. One of the things Baltimore state attorney marilyn mosby said was that the uh, the 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 stop the arrest everything about this was illegal so that if you start from the point of illegality then my question becomes okay even when i looked at the list of charges this was about ensuring that somebody had to basically be convicted for something from the nature of what happened freddie gray made eye contact with these officers eye contact which in what world is that a crime so that's the first piece I take your point, Melence, about um, masculinity. And I definitely think one of the issues of patriarchy is the kind of toxic masculinity that creates a relationship to power that is, yeah, that is consistently abusive. The relationship to power is consistently abusive and it's rooted in a level of insecurity and fear. And the politics of fear in an election cycle help create what we have. But beyond the election cycle, this is the reality that has, been exi- that has existed with police forces across the United States. So those are the first two points. But the third point is actually about the bill, HB 953, which um, Louisiana's governor, John Edwards, is about to sign. And when you look at the content of it, what they're saying is what the um, representative Harris um, the um, the um, I was going to say Member of Parliament, but that's British, the representative of Louisiana um, said that, you know, they can't have people thinking they can just threaten police officers on Facebook and social media and that this is terrorizing those officers and that needs to be dealt with. So I'm thinking, okay... This bill is not about, it's not the commission of the crime. It is the articulation of people's feelings, expressions of anger, hurt as a result of violence perpetuated by the police on individuals. And that is the way they're being targeted. And so you're, you're watching the on, the, on the one hand, when you pass it in black and white, when black people articulate their feelings, their anger, their rage, their hurt as a result of the killing of a black or brown man or woman at the hands of the police, then that is now being targeted and described as um, worthy of, of, of being criminalized. It's literally being criminalized. But when a black man actually dies, you're watching officers walk free. And I was really struck by, um, it's a devastating irony, but it's the reality of how the cancer of, um, of racism um, works. Now the the police officer who drove the van is the one he's going to be on trial in two weeks' time, and the belief is that he will face the most severe charges because of the failure to secure Freddie Gray in the back of the um, the back of the van. But I wonder what you will think about this individual passing out of responsibility when the police move like a unit so they move like a collective can you just individualize it like that and how does that really help move us forward when it comes to notions of um of justice Sophia? let me ask you that question
2: it
4: doesn't help us it's 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 just another um way of perpetuating that myth that these incidences are about a few bad apples or good people making a poor decision in a stressful situation. It's a complete disregard for the longstanding police subculture and the institutional life outlooks towards communities that are being policed that are constantly at play in these situations. And one thing that um, I, that I noticed about a lot of the news reports, you know, they, some of them made an issue of the fact that Officer Nero asked for a bench trial. And, and what none of these news reports stated is that bench trials tend to favor defendants um, and that police officers are more likely to opt for bench trials over jury trials. So no one wants to deal with the reality of why that is. And why that is is because if a police officer is put in front of 12 people um, who, it's like you said, Esther, you know, if if they're coming from communities that have these very um, legitimate issues with the police, that's why they don't want to be held in front of them. They do not see a jury of people from the community that they police as, as juries of their peers. That's why they want to have one judge who is parsing out responsibilities on very, very technical issues. And if the driver in the Freddie Gray case is not held accountable, then, every, then no one's going to be held accountable because it is already being set up for him to uh, be the most responsible given his role as a driver and given very explicitly laid out protocols about what is supposed to happen um, in that situation. So uh, there isn't, this is all about uh, playing back into that notion that breaking it down by individuals and you're going to, you're going to try to set up a sense of like, you see, if one person, it's it's just one bad apple. And not wanting to deal with um, policing as an institution, um, that is racist, that is patriarchal, that is classic. This is about trying to get away from
0: that. Same question to you, Shani.
4: This conversation
5: all points to the need for systemic change. It shows the limits of, of the law uh, in terms of both me, uh, really exactly the justice that communities are demanding. Um, and in this case, you know, we've had um, a woman who is widely perceived as a champion and of her son. Uh, stand up at the height of the unrest and say, you know, I got this. Let me do what I do, um, and it's that you move forward with all the best intentions, we still finding the same outcome. Uh, so the question that it poses to me is, uh, you know, in the world, in the words of the World Social Forum, another world is possible. So what can we do to bring that into existence?
0: I hear that. I hear that. Last thought to you, Melence. I feel this world will bring itself into existence, you know, because we're
1: looking at something um right now, events that are happening right now, however, just the format changed. You know, these events have been happening historically and generationally. It's not just anger that is arising because of this incident. It's anger that has been has built up through several generations. You know, there has never been um responsibility, reconciliation that has been taken. Um, And I hate to make this about race, because I'm a product of white and black, you know, so by all means, I'm not a racist. I'm just looking at history and looking at this from a a bit like larger perspective. And um, however, there has never been a moment in time where the oppressor, let's not even make it about color, has taken responsibility and apologized. And from that, we could have moved forward. But a mistake has first to be acknowledged, you know. Presently, mistakes are just being repeated. They're, it's the same mistake, but just dressed in red instead of green, you know. And um, however, it's, it's I feel as, as, as humanity, we're evolving. Our consciousness is evolving. People are waking up. And I believe that, The problem will take care of itself one way or the other. And what I addressed when it comes to evolution, that is a fact. That also is not a racist remark. It's an observation. You know, two-thirds of the world's population, even more, are of color. We're all intermixing. We won't have the problem of race because a few generations down the line, everybody will be colored. (laughs) This is just not... There will be no such thing as white supremacy or yellow supremacy or red supremacy. It will just not exist anymore. So so that's why I'm like, it's unfortunate what's happening now, but ultimately it's a battle that is already won, let's put it that way.
5: But I suspect that even um, with a different kind of world and color constructs coming into existence, that human beings are going to find new ways to innovate new kinds of privilege <laughs> that are going to just replicate the same system. But
1: based on other criteria, and that is fine, then everybody has the, right, the same prerequisites, you know, but to just exclude one person from the table because of the color with which they were born? No.
0: Well, you know, what not, I would
5: put the towards is like. finding ways to interrogate and dismantle those kinds of hierarchical constructs, no matter what the markers are. Um, and and it requires a, a real sort of rigorous analysis of the way that these systems function and um, a conversation, an honest, difficult, messy conversation about what it would really mean for all of us
1: to uh, dismantle them. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, we're we, we, we evolving. Our consciousness is evolving, but there's mm-hmm. zero nobility and oppression. <laughs> no nobility and oppression. You know, we all agree on that. and. Presently, the Western world plays kind of a moral apostle trying to tell the rest of the world how it is done. However, it's the very same people that that implement these moral codexes that violate them on a daily basis, you know? Mm -hmm. And you can't live life like that. In the short term, it might work. It might even work for a few generations. That is short term. If we look at a larger context, we we are a peck on the timeline of this universe, you know, of this planet even. And um, I'm not worried. It will resolve itself. I'm just, it's unfortunate, it may, you know, it,
4: that, that... It may just be the case that um, it's going to take um, some folks who are a little further along in that evolved consciousness to force other people to come along by demanding um, respect. And... Um, and having power analysis and organizing, Um, because people who are privileged and who are and have power um, that is based on oppression are not going to give it up easily. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, No one changes without discomfort. Something has to force you to see that um, the way you're living is in some way out of alignment with a higher purpose. And, mm-hmm. within, and, and within, and um, within, you know, the social social contract, because we're all living on this planet together. What is probably going to happen is you're going to need move movements like Black Lives Matter, um, if mm-hmm. we're going to, if we have a chance of changing police culture and policing um, institutions, then it's going to take people of conscience like the Black Lives Matter movement to force their hands. So I, uh, then I hear what you're trying to, what you're trying to say. Um, I, I I wanted to connect it with um, what is actually happening on the ground politically, um, because people have to be forced to change. Um, mm-hmm. Because if you have power, you're comfortable. Even if you mm-hmm. have an a, an inkling of spiritual, emotional inkling that this is not right, but if you're comfortable it's going to take something to be, you have to be... You have to be disrupted
1: in order to grow. And movement... Yeah, but as ultimately um, everybody dies, you know. So even if it's not happening in our generation, you know, I mean, like Rosa Parks had to fight for her bus seat, you know. The next generation is more evolved than us and different, you know. They will not be discussing the same issues. I feel sometimes... Change comes out of contrast because it has to, it has to kind of a situation has to um, build up in order for its opposite to be pushed forward. And I feel that's happening now, you
0: know. This is interesting to me because I, I think that all um, structures are dismantled or they're upheld, but they don't evolve of their own volition. I mean, history has taught us that. It has taken movements, it's taken civil disobedience, it's taken disruption, it's taken organizing, it's taken activism, but it's taken action in order for any kind of change to come. And then we've seen the um, hierarchies of oppression shift form, but continue in another way, in another space. And so, okay, in the 21st century we don't have the enslavement on physical plantations, but the evolution of the way that the police deal with young black and brown men and women is a direct, it's the child of the enslavement via plantation um, um, angle and the prison industrial complex is the 21st century manifestation of that space. And so I think consciousness, a deliberate creation of consciousness that disrupts the structures that have been created. It's what's required to make change and our history teaches that. That change has never come of its own volition. It has been the result of activism and movement and people being made to be comfortable. I mean, Frederick Douglass said that power concedes nothing without a demand and we see that manifest again and again and again and the police when it comes to, you know, part of when I, when I listen to some of the stories of individual police officers, sometimes I think part of what attracts them is the opportunity to wield power unsanctioned. Is the idea that they can engage in as an oppressor against an oppressed people, more oppressed people, and not have to face the sanctions of that. And every time somebody walks free after a young black and brown man or woman is dead, that's um, emphasizing... That specific power, and uh, it's deeply, deeply, deeply problematic. But I don't think it moves without the kind of activism via movements and institutions and individuals that we see all the time. It is literally the sound of the police.
3: Yes. That's the sound of the police. That's the sound of sound police. Yes.
0: so that was our main event conversation you're listening to the spin a one-hour weekly all women of color media panel i'm your host esther Arma. our contributors this week are shani jamila sofia kindero melence bart williams this spin is brought to you by the african-american public radio consortium i'm live in three fms across studios in ghana our contributors join me via npr's washington dc studios we are on air Across the US, in Arizona, Ohio, North and South Carolina, New Jersey, Mississippi, and Iowa. We are on air in West Africa, on 3FM in Accra, Ghana, and on WFM 91.7, Lagos, Nigeria. And we are online via podcast. time for the first of our Hot Topics. May 25th is Africa Liberation Day and Africa Union Day.
3: Africa Unite, because we're moving right out of Babylon, and we're going to our father's land. Yeah. How good and how pleasant it would be.
0: Africa Unite, said Bob Marley. Well, Haiti has just joined the African Union, the body representing 54 countries across Africa. It's a body that was previously committed to liberation movements and it now deals with spearheading development. And speaking of development, what exactly did happen to that $500 million given by citizens all over the world to the Red Cross to redevelop Haiti post the horrific 2010 earthquake? Red Cross is an NGO it's part of a global multi-billion dollar business. Charity, and charity to Africa is a huge part of that multi-billion dollar what I call charity industrial complex. Now fresh narrative challenging this traditional formula of starving African children meets US dollars or sterling uh, or whatever the European currency is emerging. Economist and author Dambisa Moyo challenged aid to Africa in her New York Times best-selling book Dead Aid. Moyo's narrative This type of aid just doesn't work for Africa. It hurts Africans, encourages corruption and makes the continent poorer. Take a listen. It's been 60 years, over $1 trillion has gone to Africa. Um, But if you look at growth and if you look at poverty, it's getting worse. Um, Right now, over 60% of Africa is under the age of 24. Many Africans don't have job prospects. Um, The political instability across the continent has not reduced. Um, In 1970s, 10% of the population lived in dire poverty. It's now over 70% of the population that's living in dire poverty. And aid, unfortunately, brings in a lot of negative incentives. The governments behave badly. It discourages investment and entrepreneurship, and it disenfranchises Africans. Moyo describes three types of aid, humanitarian or emergency aid, charitable aid, and the huge government-to-government aid. Melente Bart-Williams offers another narrative on aid. In her TED Talk, Melente argues the notion of who is wealthy and who is poor when it comes to Africa, the West, and aid has been reversed, and that reversal has created the multi-billion dollar charity porn industry. In her TED Talk, Melente Bart-Williams invites us to reconsider her nation, Sierra Leone, continent of Africa and this narrative of what she calls quote charity porn unquote take a listen
2: of course the West needs Africa's resources most desperately to power airplanes cell phones computers and engines and the golden diamonds of course a status symbol to determine their powers by decor and to give value to their currencies One thing that keeps me puzzled, despite having studied finance and economics at the world's best universities, the following question remains unanswered. Why is it that 5,000 units of our currency is worth one unit of your currency, where we are the ones with the actual gold reserves? It's quite evident that the aid is in fact not coming from the West to Africa, but from Africa to the Western world. The Western world depends on Africa in every possible way, since alternative resources are scarce out here. So how does the West ensure that the free aid keeps coming? By systematically destabilizing the wealthiest African nations and their systems, and all that backed by huge PR campaigns leaving the entire world under the impression that Africa is poor and dying and merely surviving on the mercy of the West. Well done, Oxfam, UNICEF, Red Cross, Life Aid, and all the other organizations that continuously run multi-million dollar advertisement campaigns depicting charity porn to sustain that image of Africa globally.
0: So let's talk the state of giving to the Africa Union on Africa Liberation Day, May 25th. Melen Spott-Williams, let me start with you.
1: It's a multi-billion industry. Just to give you an example, let's take the UK, for instance. 2015, they had around 200,000 charity organisations that were counted. And on average, these organisations have between 10 to 200 employees. So that means several million people. Are employed in the UK contributing to the British GDP based on content that Africa is providing, you know, for their PR campaigns that generate these funds. And um, it would be an entire employment sector that would just vanish and um, I don't know what it would do to the rate of unemployment but it's undeniable that these, this particular industry um, contribute to various countries' GPs to a large extent, you know, because these people are not employed in Africa. That goes into their accounts overseas in Britain, America, Europe, wherever these uh, charity organizations are located. And um, basically, when you look at it from a different perspective, it's almost like I have zero control about the image they're creating and putting out there. On my behalf, and that's what 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 Africa, the position that Africa has assumed. You know, it's funding this industry with billions and billions of dollars, providing content, but has no say in how this PR campaign that is is, is propagated across the world about Africa is is uh, what it's like. And um, I don't know at this point. I think the only solution is Africa to pull like a a prince move, you know, like, hey, I'm no longer prince, I'm the sign, and, and I don't want to fund your, 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 your organization any longer, you know. So that's what literally has to happen. We have to take control of, of our image, you know, internationally. We have to dictate our own image. We can't leave that to the hands of people that have ulterior motives, because of course it's 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 a beautiful cash cow, Africa, such a beautiful and abundant cow, you know, and it's been so easy to milk that cow, of course, you want to keep that cow in the stable and 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 unexposed, you know to the best of your ability, but I feel there is a great change also happening. people are waking up, and um people are becoming more educated, people are becoming more aware and looking at things from a different perspective but for a long time it's a genius concept it's a genius must admit that you know if i come to you i have you pay me to run your campaign and i dictate what image i put out there it's a genius concept (laughs) you know i must admit but um unfortunately on the backs of, of 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 an entire continent
0: shani jamila
5: this is a robust industry, poverty porn and charity porn. And, um, you know, I'm thinking about the ways in which there have been recent uh, flare-ups and conversation about it. Sean Penn has a movie coming out called The Last Face that was roundly critiqued at Cannes for its focus on the white protagonists uh, and using African people as props to support their story. Uh, there's an account on Instagram, White Savior Barbie, that mocks the... Charitable impulse of white volunteers in the developing world, you know. Uh, so there's a number of different ways that people are beginning to interrogate uh, the dynamics that result in this this industry. And what I think is so brilliant about Mwansa's TED talk, which, if we adopt the Prince paradigm, as she suggests, which I highly recommend, uh, and we're talking about the continent formerly known as, <laughs> perhaps, is that she fundamentally, she fundamentally <laughs> defines. The frame within which this conversation is happening, you know, so questioning assumptions that many take as fundamental and and saying, why might that be? How is it that we color paper and endow it with meaning that has real-life consequences for literally everybody that walks this earth? You know, how is it that we assign value? And I think that's an important query to be had on this day, um, which I saw on allafrica.com. They described as marking the progress of the liberation movement and symbolizing the determination of African people to free themselves from foreign domination influence and exploitation.
0: Powerful. Sofia Quintero. The thing that struck me the
4: most from Milen's wonderful TED Talk was how capitalism is always the way to go unless the nation is not the United States or in Western Europe. Because, as you said, Milen, um, if things were left as we... Are often saying they should be less, and Africa would, um, would c- command the prices that the marketplace would allow. Um, and so this got me really thinking also about, um, you know, I- I'm Latina, so I see parallels in what has happened through in Latin America throughout history, um, where a dictator that has to be overthrown and a dictator who can be negotiated with. Is determined by that person's willingness to allow u.s. corporations to raid their country's natural resources even if it's to the detriment of their own people so if you are a leader um, even if you were um, uh, legally elected and you say u.s. corporations cannot come in and exploit your natural resources well then you need to be overthrown you are a threat to your people but if you're someone that will allow U.S. corporations to come in and exploit resources, even if it hurts your people, you're someone that can be tolerated. And we, we also have to link the charity point to the economy of war, where very complicated histories of civil unrest are oversimplified and spun to argue that the West has to intervene and that the West has to come in and save African people from African governments. And that also is me to the perception that these countries need the U.S. to quote-unquote help um, and help them to see the virtues of self-government and to take on their fight. And so I, I see these things as links. And, and on a very personal level, like, it reminded me of when I was in college <laughs> being taken in by one of those Save the Children campaigns. Now, I'm of Dominican defense, and I specifically asked for a Dominican child, and I got a Colombian child with no explanation. So now I'm wondering to what extent that had to do with the value that was perceived in Colombia versus the lack of value perceived in the Dominican Republic. Um, so you got me thinking about, about that with your, your charity porn um, concept
0: it's so powerful because I'm I'm sitting here in um, in Ghana in West Africa, and what I loved about Malense's TED Talk it was the, the reimagining of the notion of wealth and poverty, and doing it in a way that was so um, stark and so profound. I think we're going to have to all adopt the continent formerly known as. Because that's genius. Um, but I also think about actually think about is isn't that I love cool. It. It's so good. That's literally going to be the title, The Continent Formerly Known As. Um, But I think about Walter Rodney's 1972 book, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa. And I think replace Europe with how charity continues to underdevelop um, Africa. And the notion that in some ways this is connected to the um, first story about the hierarchies of oppression, but also the ideas of a kind of a toxic patriarchy that always requires that the way you feed your power is through someone else's vulnerability, that there can never be a partnership of power recognizing power, skill set recognizing skill set, and looking at ways to move forward on the basis of an exchange of skill and service, as opposed to a hierarchy of oppression. And I think that part of what charity porn reminds me of, that model reminds me of, is the um the manifestation of emotionality when it comes to patriarchy, and that that applies to how charity works and how charity manifests. most of these big organizations, oxfam, Red Cross, these big huge organizations, the state to state giving is a it's a racial construct. it breaks down again in that particular space and again, it's talking about these um hierarchical spaces and it's um. It's the kind of feel good for the NGO industrial complex that is actually cancerous. So it, it, it should lead us to legitimately ask what investment do you have in development, in a healthy continent, in... Um, uh, in growth, in a progressive politics, when the formula that you use so requires you that you feed the weakest part of yourself. And that is your fear and your ego and your insecurity. Because the only way you can give is the belief that there's somebody who's starving, hands outstretched, malnourished. Um, and that's the only form of giving that you can entertain. And I think it, it, it really speaks to an emotional cancer in the way that charity and um, the N- and NGOs can be run, but particularly the way charity has functioned from the West to um, Africa. Shani, one thing I wanted to ask you about was you're an artist-activist who's traveled to, to all different parts of the world and who's also African-American. And so there's a way in which um, the relationship to giving is rooted and formed in a particular way in the States. And so one of the things that Melence But Williams talks about is completely reimagining the charity model, and she calls it charity. So in other words, it's, it's like an exchange of services and goods. It's not this very kind of really a hierarchy of, of oppressions. It's not this toxic space of power and powerlessness. Um, and so I wonder in your um, travels how you might see that working in some of the spaces you've been into artistically.
5: I mean, I think one of the many gifts of, of global travel is that it really forces you to interrogate um, privilege in a way that um, is, it, was, it was life-changing for me um, as a black woman to with a Pan-Africanist outlook, um, to find myself out in the world and really having to wrestle with what admit to be endowed with the privilege of a U.S. passport in that it allowed me um, much easier access to travel widely um, and not have to go through the, the issues of trying to get visas from most of the countries that I um, want to visit. Um, and, you know, coming from the States, I'm used to wrestling with oppression Um, from a black feminist frame where we know that the liberation of black women means liberation of everybody because we're at the nexus of all the different isms, racism, sexism, classism, et cetera. Um, And so having to uh, really work to redefine what it meant to be uh, endowed with privilege instead of uh, on the opposite end of the spectrum was was, uh, difficult and challenging and... um, one of the greatest gifts that I've gotten from travel um, because it's really necessary to understand um, the way that oppression functions to know that our role in it is mutable, right? And that sometimes we are uh, on the receiving end and sometimes we can be on the other end and um, being honest about that and being willing to look at the ways that Um, privilege functions, I think is a really important part of understanding what this charity porn industry really is and how we can begin to confront confront
0: it. Malence, I wonder for you what becomes the most challenging element of this um, charity porn um, as your talk is received and played again and again for these spaces and organizations that have a very particular relationship to giving and am being required to change that?
1: Okay, defeat is always in the head. You know, when you look at the greatest boxers and so on, it's in the head. Once they've been defeated, they can be defeated again. And that has been accomplished with people of color, not just Africans, to make them believe that they're inferior, systematically, since a couple of generations. And I feel like right now I'm actually rather optimistic because people are waking up, the internet is like, girling information left right front and center we have to take charge we have to first of all write our own history because it feels like at the plantation it began and stopped you know it's like as if there was never great kingdoms and queendoms and civilizations that came out of africa it has to like it has to start with us taking charge of um our imagery number one and i feel Why porn is such a perfect analogy because really what has happened with Africa is what has happened with women too. You know, voluntarily, by psychologically indoctrinating them, women now voluntarily portray that, you know, on social media, even like free of charge. They don't even need to be hired to be shooting a porn movie. And um, I feel generally as society, we have to take charge of our worth and our values whether that is Africans, whether that is women, um, people have accomplished a form of exploitation where the victim voluntarily participated. Again, a genius move. You've got to respect it, you know, but it's coming to light now. So I feel, yeah, Africa and women, they're kind of a little bit in the same boat, paddling in the same boat, you know, recognizing who they really are, recognizing their worth, and recognizing that they've been played like a puppet, you know,
0: and they've assumed that role. Let's close with this conversation, the face of black feminism, light-skinned and biracial, and what happens when feminism meets colorism. A series of tweets by Pax Jones, who launched a photo series about herself and her Sri Lankan colleagues called Unfair and Lovely, were rehashed and appeared on a Facebook page called Son of Baldwin. It prompted some think pieces about what scholar Lisa B. Thompson calls the cover girls of the revolution. And in one blog post written by Abi Ishola, she says, and I quote, Should light-skinned black women begin to acknowledge their own privileges and how it's afforded them the ability to become the poster girls of the modern-day black feminist movement? Wouldn't that be an important piece in discussing the dehumanization of black women? Or is celebrating one's blackness deemed more revolutionary when the message comes from someone with lighter skin, unquote? So let's talk very briefly about the cover girls of the revolution, the politics of black pretty and black beauty and representation when it meets feminism. So this is interesting because we have just in this call in terms of our color um, politics, a representation of interest. I'm a brown-skinned um, um, woman sitting here on the continent of Africa in West Africa in Ghana. Shani is African-American and Malenz is actually biracial German, from Germany and Sierra Leone. So Shani Jamila, your thoughts on this piece?
5: Yes, I think it's complicated, right? Because the politics of Hollywood are real, as are the ramifications of colorism and beauty politics within our community. And it feeds back into this kind of ongoing thread we've had in today's conversation about um, the hierarchies of oppression and the way the privilege functions. And I understand in this case where both sides of the debate are coming from. And my take is that women like Amandla and Zendaya, um, and interestingly and importantly, men like Jesse Williams, who've explicitly talked about the impact of his visual aesthetic on his career advancement and on his ability to have a platform. Um, you know, these, these actors are using their voices, um and, and their platforms to the best of their ability. And, and I think that Hollywood should absolutely be critiqued um for privileging only a narrow of society, those that are young, that are thin, and I say with air quotes, you know, referencing the the Viola Davis debacle, classically beautiful people. Um, But as black feminists, I think it's incumbent upon us not to fall victim to dismissiveness or to divisiveness, and instead to find ways to elevate the spectrum of voices and visuals that represent the fullness of our community.
0: Melence Bart williams last word to you.
1: Um, I feel, yeah, I would say... This only works as long as you acknowledge the system, if you seek validation by such things as the Oscars or Hollywood, these industries. But ultimately, I think Hollywood is not to blame. We are to blame for not shooting our own movies and telling our own stories and um, casting our own actress. Because why is it like, um, what's her name? Sa- Saladina. She was criticized, you know, um, for that she's not an uh, an adequate a black-looking enough actress to, to, to play Nina Simone, but how come somebody else is given the leeway to tell our stories in the first place? You know, So there's nobody to blame for this. And I think it's rather a wake-up call for us to, again, to take charge of our image, how we want to be seen and how we see ourselves. It really starts, at the end of the day, I couldn't care less how anybody sees me, but what matters is how we see ourselves. You know, we should really start there. We should um, appreciate ourselves and when you start bleaching and and and, and uh, wearing wearing wigs and all this to imitate your oppressor. I mean, sorry. You know, then, then then don't complain for not being respected. Because you're not respecting yourself. You know, it really starts with how we see ourselves. The rest doesn't matter, you know. The rest really doesn't matter. But to complain that the Oscars didn't go to this group and this group, who cares, you know, who cares about the Oscars? You're giving it far too much um, importance, you know, and and we should reverse that entire
0: dialogue. So So this becomes interesting and complicated for a number of reasons, because I think that on the one hand, you have these young women in Hollywood. Hollywood as a space is one of unhealthy, unreal ideals, visually, um, in terms of body politic, even in terms of what happens on the, on the big screen. And then you have um, um, Malent argue you're somebody for whom um, the, 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 the narrative that you live will treat you in a particular way because of your visual um, aesthetic. That should not negate The good work that you do and the way that you do that work. And I think my critique of this piece is the idea of negating the good work that these young women in Hollywood are doing, um, as opposed to critiquing Hollywood itself, which is, again has this kind of hierarchy of visualization that doesn't that that favors anything that's as close to white as possible. So absolutely, yes, we should more and more and more and more narratives and stories made by people of color about people of color. Yes. But I always think it's both. And it's the critique of the structure as is, as well as the creation of the counter narrative or the narrative that centralizes all the myriad beauties that are um, that are blackness. Well, that's your hour. Thank you to Melence Bart-Williams, Shani Jamila, Sofia Quintero. Thank you, ladies. Thank you. Bye, ladies. Thank you to the Spin Production Team, Sound Editor Mark Torres, Distributor Loretta Rucker, and the AAPRC. Put The Spin on your regular podcast rotation. The Spin, your hour of talk, where smart is also and always sexy. I'm your host, Esther Arma. This program has been brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium NPR Distribution, and the Public Radio Satellite System.